This is not an easy text to obey, do you think? I think we need to pray. So perhaps we can pray a prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at Sermon on the Mount all this fall, and there's a prayer right in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, that I would like us, well, I think we need to stand together yet again and pray this prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I heard you praying it. I meant to look out to see who uh, wasn't going to pray it. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. I'm not going to ask who didn't pray that, but I'll tell you, people who have claimed to follow Jesus throughout the history of the church and all over the world have prayed those words, and I think most have had absolutely no idea what we've been praying. They had no idea of the radical nature of the change that that prayer brings about if God actually answers it. Uh, your kingdom come on earth. That means in my own life. I'm just telling you, when I've been ruined my own life and God breaks in, even though the word always tells us that his ways are better than higher than ours, when God breaks in and he is in charge and I'm no longer in charge, everything's going to change. And some of it is going to be really tough. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you who are visiting with us, Sermon on the Mount runs from Matthew 5 through most of chapter 7. And in it, Jesus is talking about that when he comes, he is bringing in the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven into this world. But when other things have been ruling, uh, the ways of the world, the evil one, and so many times ourselves, and God breaks in, he calls for radical change. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember, I talked in one of the early messages about this. I called it the principle of changing regimes. Anybody remember that? No one. That's what I figured. I better bring it back again. I'm just saying that any place in this world, when a new ruler comes into a place, the old rulers resist. That is true when you get a new boss in the workplace. That's true when there have been breaks in our families and a blended family comes together and some new authority comes. Whenever a new ruler steps in, the old ways of doing things are going to change, and that is true when we surrender to the rule of God and when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. What happens is other things have been ruling, and the world says the world, the flesh, and the devil. So other things have been ruling so that when God breaks in and he says, I have a better way to live, and he tells us what that better way is, sometimes his way, well, it seems impossible. Sometimes it just seems crazy to us. 
What are you talking about, Pastor, you might be saying? I'm talking about something like Matthew 5, 39 to 40 that Mark just read to us. So, if you're going to pray, your rule come, your kingdom come, here's what it's going to look like. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to that person the other cheek also. That's what it's going to look like. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I'm telling you, I can almost hear us inside saying, well, yes, but. Were you thinking that? Or, or, or maybe honest ones among us, he can't mean... These have to be among the best-known teachings of all of Jesus' teachings. Uh, even people who never go to church have heard turn the other cheek, right? Go the extra mile. Yet I'm telling you, I, I find very few people who take those words seriously. When we really stop and look at them, they seem like good ideals. But most will say, well, they just seem so impractical. Nobody can really live that way. And some people will even say it wouldn't be good to live that way. They say this, this whole thing of just um, uh, not resisting an evil person, that sounds like we're just going to let evil proliferate in the world and let, let evil people do whatever they want. So, Pastor, you, you've got to explain this stuff away to us this, today. But I say unto you, <laughs> I, I honestly believe that these words of Jesus provide for us the only hope for lasting relationships here among human beings. I, I, I mean it that seriously. I think understanding them and beginning to obey them provide the only lasting hope for shalom and peace-filled relationships. I, I would love to hear a politician try to argue that in our debates. Argue how turn the other cheek and if somebody sues you, go ahead and give them that and more too is going to provide for a lasting shalom kind of relationship here in the United States. We're not going to hear that happen, are we? But I'm just telling you that the way of Jesus is a better way. And I'm going to, by God's grace, I'm going to try to show that to you today. And what we're going to be seeing Jesus talking about is this. What life looks like when we truly obey the second great command. That you and I are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to see what that looks like. And we're going to see what life is supposed to look like when we truly pray. What most of us prayed today. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Now, I'll tell you, it's such a difficult passage. I've decided just to ask four simple questions. First one is, Pastor, has something been lost in the translation? <laughs> has something been lost in the translation here? Because actually, you know, Jesus was speaking Aramaic. And then those words were translated over into the, uh, what got to us, into Greek. And then the Greek was translated over into what we've been reading, in, into English, and language keeps changing. And, of course, Jesus was uh, living in a completely different culture two millennia ago. So maybe there are some things that we need to understand. And, and I think that is true. So I'm going to try to show you three things. I want us to look at this quote, the command, and the slap. And I think it's going to help us to understand what Jesus is getting at. So the quote is found there in verse 38. You have heard it said, Jesus said, this quote, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that is a quote from Exodus 21-24, written long before Jesus was born. And it was in instructions that God the Father had given to the judges in ancient Israel. That when a person in ancient Israel would, would go to tri trial and be convicted of a crime, 
God's word gave the parameters in which punishments were to be meted out. So what he's saying is, you see it, whenever someone comes and is convicted of a crime, the punishment that you give in the courtroom should be appropriate to the crime. It shouldn't be excessive and it shouldn't be too lenient. So if it's an eye, it should be an eye. That's what he is getting at. He's calling for judges to exercise good judgment so that justice can prevail. It's the kind of thing that, that Victor Hugo was getting at in his world where he didn't see this happening. And in Les Miserables, you know, the main character, Jean Valjean, is sentenced to 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And the Bible is trying to work against that and saying you're not going to have a good and a just society if, if you have inappropriate punishments. It, it's, it's what some people are rebelling about here in California with the problems in our prisons uh, that when a person is convicted of a crime, they go in and maybe are sentenced to a long period and, and get out in 20, well, sometimes 24 minutes. That, that couldn't happen here. So that's what, what, what uh, is happening here. And what was happening in Jesus' day is people took this command that was intended for the judicial system, for the courts, and they would just rip it out of context and put it into their own personal lives. So that they would say, if somebody lashes out at me, look, God gives me the permission to go after that person. So if they gouge out my eyes, I'm going to get, their, get theirs too. And if it's a really irritating person, I might get the second one as well. So you see, the, the, the command is talking about a very wise instruction that God gives to have justice in the world. Do you see that? Now, no, no, let's look at the command. Verse 39, this really troubles some people. Do not resist an evil person. And when we just read that, it sounds like if anybody evil tries to do anything, just let them get by with it, whether to you or to anybody else. But I'll tell you, the Bible never tells us to do that. It never tells us to refuse to ever defend ourselves and especially others who are being wronged. The problem is in the way that word resist is translated. Almost always that word had to do with military retaliation. That whenever somebody would, would uh, have an attack in a military setting, that the military would have to come back and sometimes the punishment would have to be so thoroughgoing that the enemy would be completely destroyed. And Jesus says, on your personal interactions, if you feel somebody has wronged you, you don't retaliate, you don't engage in personal revenge against that person. That's what he's getting at with this command. So we, we've looked at the quote, we looked at the command, and then he takes that, in, that command, don't retaliate, don't get revenge for a personal offense, and then he has four cameos of what that looks like in everyday living. And the first one is the one that has so often been misunderstood, and this is what he says. So, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And the way many people understand this is, well, if somebody comes up and just slugs you on the right, say, hey, that wasn't all that bad. Slug me harder on the left. Well, that's not what he's getting at. You need to know that the slap in the face was not really talking about physical harm at all. It was the ultimate insult in the ancient Near East when Jesus was alive. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago that when the, uh, uh, President Bush was in the Middle East, one of the reporters threw a shoe at him. Now, I don't think that reporter thought he was actually going to do much physical harm with the shoe. But in, in his country, that was the ultimate insult. 
And so what Jesus is saying is someone, if someone comes to you and tries to humiliate you with an insult, listen, don't try to pretend that you're absolutely perfect because you know that you aren't. You wouldn't have come to me and, and sought my mercy and grace. Instead, say, well, if you really want to insult me, I can tell you some real stuff here, this as well. Now, this is really hard for us because in any me-centered society, which almost every society in the history of the world has ever been. But in any me-centered society, nothing provokes us more than when our ego feels like it's been attacked. And Jesus says, I want to show you a better way than lashing back at the one who insults you. So uh, maybe that helps you a little bit to understand what was going on when Jesus was teaching it. Which brings me to the second question. So then, what on earth is he teaching? Bottom line, what Jesus is saying is, when we invite the kingdom of God to come into our lives, when God rules our lives, and someone attacks us personally, we will not seek revenge or retaliation. He's declaring, Jesus is declaring a principle that permeates the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament, namely that personal revenge is not God's means to justice. I think we wrote it up there, didn't we? Personal revenge is not the way that God is going to bring about his justice in this world. That's what he's getting at. That when I feel personally attacked, it's not my role, it's not what God has given me, my role to make sure that I get personal justice for what I think that other person has done to me. Which really means that many people have misapplied this text. In what way? Well, today I think on this uh, Veterans Day weekend, I'm convinced that Jesus is not calling all followers to be pacifists. I don't think in this that he is saying there's no role for the military to play, and for those of you in law enforcement, that there's no role for the police uh, to play. Um, I have so many friends who are pacifists, and I've been in, in big debates with them about uh, pacifism, and, and many have strong biblical grounds, sometimes I find myself, wow, I'd never thought about it that way. But none of them take us to this text because they know that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In this regard, uh, there's a big difference between what God wants the state to do, whether that's the military or the police, and what he wants us to do when a, an injustice happens to me, when I feel like I have been personally insulted. My personal feeling, just to let you know, especially those of you who are veterans here today, that I find that often in the Bible, nations were called upon by God to take up arms for the defense of their people or to stop corruption. And in my reading of this text, Jesus is not speaking against that, uh, that teaching of Scripture. And, I'll have to say this, Jesus is not saying that we should never respond or react when we see somebody else being unjustly treated. I'm telling you, the Bible is filled with this, that when we see others being dealt with unjustly or, or wrongly, we should use whatever voice, whatever resources we have to speak up for and to defend those who are being harmed by the things in this world. So he's not talking about that. And I think I need to add this too because we have a lot of lawyers and judges in our church. I don't think Jesus is saying that we should never use the courts in fact, it's clear teaching of the Bible that government is a part of what God has instituted in this world to make sure that crime is dealt with and that those who are found guilty are actually punished. In fact, 
that's what I was pointing out. This eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was something that God had given to judges for his, for his nation of Israel to say, now, as you are engaged in the work I've called you to do, make sure that you have appropriate punishments. Do you see that? So that's not what he's talking about. What he is dealing with is that people were ripping this Exodus 21-24 out of its context and using it for a justification to just get back at other people. Oh man, my brother did this to me five years ago, and I still haven't gotten back to him fully yet. And Jesus says, no, no, no. In no uncertain terms, he says, don't take matters into your own hands. You're just going to mess up things if you do. You'll overreact. And the um, Apostle Paul, in that text that Mark read for us, In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. I just put some of it together. Look at it again in this regard. So how do we live when we got God to rule our lives? He says, here's what we do. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Uh, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, and I love this phrase, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for him to do his work. What is his work? For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I hope that the point is clear. Personal revenge is not the way that God is going to make things right in this world. I just feel like if we get that straight, these verses come alive to us and they become powerful to us. Jesus is teaching us what we really should mean when we pray... Your kingdom come. Your will be done in this earth as it is in heaven. Which brings me to my third question. Is there any wisdom in this? Can we understand why Jesus would so clearly, definitively teach such a thing? And I think there are many reasons. And I I will not try to pretend that I know all the reasons for God commanding what he commands and doing what he does. But I do see some things, and and I I want to point out two things to you. I think the first reason why why the Bible throughout and Jesus so clearly in his Sermon on the Mount tells us not to take personal revenge is because God has established a better means toward justice even in this fallen world. Uh, The Bible will tell us that God creates in this world until he's done and until we see him face to face and we stand before the king over all kings he has established in this world other authorities civil authorities that have the responsibility to punish evil in those places under their authority and to reward what is good in other words what we're not to do on an individual level God has established other authorities to do it it's it really is the responsibility of a good government to its people. When I was in the university, it's the responsibility of the school authorities to their students. Don't you think this is a part of why in this past week when some of the things came out from Penn State University, 
Our whole society says, wait a minute, where were the authorities? Because even if people don't believe what the Bible teaches, somehow they know that a good authority has been given the responsibility to speak out for those who might be oppressed or, or mistreated and how angry we get when they don't. I just added that in, but it just made me think of that. It's a responsibility in our home of, of parents to children. And I think that's why there's almost nothing that seems more offensive to us than when a, a parent abuses his or her own children. And brothers and sisters, in a church, it's a responsibility of the elders, or in our church, the ministry council, to its people. To know that we're not perfect, not a one of us, so there are going to come times where we have to engage in discipline. We have to do that. Always providing a path toward, toward restoration and, and renewal. But just to ignore things or, or, or to be overly harsh is not going to lead to justice. It's a part of why God has created things the way he has. And, and to me, his reasoning isn't hard for us to see. Because I'll tell you, if he had given it to us personally, all right, the way to have justice in this world is if you get wrong, you've got to, you've got to make that thing right. You see, personal vengeance is always passionate. We just can't be objective when it's happened to us. And our emotions just go beyond what the other person deserves. What God's Word is trying to protect is something that we value so much or have valued in our nation. Namely, that every person, whatever that person has done, every person should have an opportunity for a fair and objective trial. You see that? Why this is protecting that thing that we value so much. And that the punishment that is given should be appropriate to the crime. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you feel you've been personally offended, you've got to learn to take that matter to the right forum. Don't, don't deal with it in a one-sided, passionate anger in which I have to get back, which, which always brings up the question when I talk about it, that I get pushed back on. All right, Pastor Greg, but what if the authority doesn't do the job to my liking? What if I feel that, right, some of you are smiling because you, were some of you thinking that? No, you were just thinking that other people were, were thinking that. What if, what if the authority, our, our parents or the elders or the government, the courts, the, don't seem to have brought about justice? Uh, do I then have the right to, to, to help them out? You've got to remember that the government in Jesus' day was a pretty rotten, immoral government. So if we have that sort of thing, can we hit back? I'm just going to tell you, this is not hard when you read the Bible. It's hard to do, but the Bible's answer is absolutely no. There is never a place for personal revenge in the life of a follower of Jesus. Never. Uh, Paul's way of putting it is, we have to learn to leave room for the wrath of God. God has said, I've established authorities in this world, but I know this is an imperfect world, and sometimes the authority will fail. But there is someone who has the responsibility ultimately to make sure justice is done. It is my job, he says. I will avenge. I will replay, declares the Lord. Vengeance is God's job, not ours. Now I'll tell you, in this so many times, don't you and I just have to live by faith? It really is a question of whether we trust God to do what he says he will do. Because we'd like it to happen now, right? Will we trust him in his way and in his time? 
actually to bring about real justice? Or will we insist that somehow this time I've got to help him out or he won't get it done? So that's one of the reasons. God's found a better way to justice and if each one of us takes it into our own hands, justice isn't going to happen. And then I think another reason, the second reason why Jesus teaches about this so clearly is something that I think you know because hatred begets ever-escalating hatred. One of Martin Luther King's quotes that I think, for me, has most profoundly shaped my thinking about this, I think it's so biblical, is he said this, perhaps you remember it, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence and industry, injury. And King said, the one who hates is as much destroyed as his victim. I've talked about this before, haven't I? From, from the kindergarten playground till now, what happens? Number one insults number two. Number two insults back, but louder and viler. Number one has to hit number two. Number two has to hit back harder. Number one pulls a knife. Number two pulls a gun. A murderer is born. Or a lasting feud is begun. Uh, Have you ever read Romeo and Juliet? That's what it's all about. Or I come from West Virginia. Anybody know the Hatfield McCoys story? So it's part of the lore of West Virginia. And you know I have all these books about the Hatfield McCoy warfare that's gone on. And nobody really knows how it began. The problem is that an evil action that we perceived done toward us, when flesh reigns, when I reign, my natural reaction is to lash back. And usually it's passionate. It's overdone. And it never stops. The evil keeps growing. And the, the only way to get it to stop, and I've talked about this, is what Paul says. Don't overcome evil by doing more evil. Evil is overcome with goodness. And it's really what Jesus, if you want to look at it in that light, in these four cameos, In verses 40 to 42, it's what Jesus is getting at, what it looks like to overcome evil with good. Now, now you're still with me, aren't you? I think unless we can grasp what Jesus is saying here, we will not understand the Christian faith at all. I think this teaching stands at the very heart of what life looks like when we actually follow Jesus. We can't make sense of what Jesus did unless we grab hold of this. See, when Jesus came into this world, evil was escalating and abounding. Other enemies were ruling. The the, the kingdoms of this world were here. And there was no hope that anything could change. But he would come and repeatedly say, I've come to bring a different kingdom. I'm just going to start it so that those other kingdoms are still here two millennia later. But he's already found a way to declare that they will be defeated. How did he do it? We see it on the cross. On the cross, all of the sins of the world, including our own, were thrown at Him and put upon Him. And instead of Him letting that evil bounce right back at us and defeat us, He absorbed it. And through faith in Him, offers us back mercy and grace and forgiveness and doesn't leave us in our sins but gives us His Spirit and gives us one another and says, someday you're going to see the completion of my rule, but until then, follow me. 
And remember last week I talked about a disciple becoming one who learns from so that we can become like the one we are following. This is what he is like. From that cross declaring, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So what Jesus is saying, if we're really going to pray, your kingdom come. That means the spitefulness that's going to come our way sometimes must be met with kindness. It means that the greed that we see in our world that affects us must be met with generosity. It means that the bullying that happened in their world and in ours must be met with service. That's what he calls us to do. It's not how the military is supposed to act. It's not how the police should act. But it's how we as individual followers of Jesus should act whenever I feel I've been personally offended. It's the call of Jesus upon our lives. So again, I just ask, do you think you'll ever again pray, your kingdom come? Which brings me to the last question. We have to ask this. So which one is better? The way of the world or the way of Jesus? Don't answer it too quickly. (laughs) Which one is better? Uh, The kingdoms of this world or the rule of Jesus in our lives? Uh, I was talking with the uh, pastors about this and they said, you've got to find a way to try to help us to see these two options, either continuing to go in the way of the world or the way of going with Jesus. Have you ever tried to envision what the world is going to be like if we just continue to have a world for eternity in which the, the way that runs counter to what Jesus teaches is lived out by everyone? A world where everybody says, well, I, I have to retaliate when I feel I've been wrong. What will that lead to? A world in which if I feel I've been personally insulted, I better make sure that I insult that other person, slapping more effectively than I have been slapped. Making sure that if somebody takes something from me, trying to sue me or however else, I'm going to make sure I sue back, but faster, and I'm going to have a much more determined and successful attorney to make sure that they get theirs. What kind of world would that be? When you, when you just think about that proliferating, is there anything beautiful about that? Here in Southern California, have you followed the Dodgers fiasco over the past year and a half? Maybe no. Is this a beautiful thing? No, 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 no. Carol Kenyon, Pastor Carol, I call her my theologian and movie expert. She reminded me of a um, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan chick flick. So men, bear with me for just for just a moment, you've got mail. Two main characters. See, some of you women are, oh, yes. Two main characters. Kathleen, who had inherited her mom's private bookstore, a beautiful place, a, a beautiful, nice person. And Tom Hanks, uh, Joe Fox, uh, whose uh, family owned this powerful chain of, of bookstores that were putting the small bookstores out of business. Well, amazingly, you've got mail. Kathleen had developed this anonymous relationship online with somebody she didn't know who it was, but you know who it was. Even if you haven't watched the movie, you know who it was. It, it, it was Joe Fox. One time when she was meeting with him, she told him, you know, there are times 
when I know exactly what I want to say, but sometimes when I want to say something and insult that person, I get so tongue-tied, I can never say what I want to say when I want to say it. Finally, one time when she was with Joe Fox, she was able to say, I mean, it was really biting. You can pull it up on YouTube and see it. It was really biting as she really put him down. But when she went back and got online with this friend, who was Joe Fox, and she didn't know it was, this is what she said. Something amazing happened last night. For the first time in my life, I was able to say the exact insulting thing I wanted to say at the exact moment I wanted to say it. And I felt terrible. I was cruel. And I'm never cruel. The thing she thought was only he is cruel. I, but we see ourselves. You see, Jesus is showing us a better way when we think, I've got to get justice no matter what we do. We're still not going to feel like, oh, I got it done. It's never done. Jesus is showing us a better way. He's been teaching. Do you remember the, the, the verses 21 to 24? It starts here. He's been teaching that when we come to him and, and find that, that he is ready, ready to forgive us and to receive us, uh, then, then we no longer have pride which means, verses 21 to 24, that when we see anybody else, we never call anybody else a raka. Remember that? Which means a nobody. Because we know if anybody is a nobody, I'm the nobody. We look at that cross and we know that I needed that cross. So we can never look and see that somebody else is a nobody. Right? Do you see this? It's that conviction of sin that always happens when we come and say, I need you to rule my life because I've messed it up. But, but far from being convicted of sin, making me a less loving person, it's the beginning of the ability to love people. So that if they come up and they insult me, I say, man, if you want to find something about me that's not perfect, I know a lot of other stuff that I can tell you about. And we don't try to cover it up because we've never covered it up from him. That's why we've fallen on our knees needing the grace of Jesus. See, that's what he's getting at. When we come to him, we surrender to the rule of God and we find that instead of him holding us eternally accountable for our sins, the punishment that was due us he bore it and offered us back forgiveness and a new life. Hallelujah. Isn't that the good news of Jesus? And again, it's an issue of faith. Can we trust Jesus? It's really what I wanted to try to put in front of us today. Do you think his way is better? I'm not ever trying to pretend it's easy. Because our own flesh and the other things in this world will war against it. I'm just so convinced that our marriages will be better. Um, when Chris and I were engaged, Chris, I don't know, she was living in Chicago and I was in Germany. So she sent me all these books I had to read. I read them. Uh, one of them, from James Dobson, one of his early books, was called What Every Wife Wished Her Husband Knew About Women. There's one part of that that I have never forgotten, and what she said, when you get married, quickly you learn how to hurt one another. You know just the word that'll go really deep inside. You know just the look on your face. 
And Jesus is saying, you'll learn to do that because you're not yet all that you would be. But let me give you a better way. If you will learn, you don't have to retaliate and you absorb whatever happens and offer back a new beginning. Don't you think our marriages will be better? I think our families will be better. So many families among us and in every place I've ever been, we have grievances that have lasted for many, many years. Sometimes I remember one of these two brothers, they had hated one another, I think, since they came out of the womb. They were both in our church and they were leaders in our church. And finally one day they came and I did not realize how deeply that hatred went. And, you know, when you get to that point, and those of you who are counselors, when, when you come to the counselor, to the pastor, by the time you step in, now you have all of this years of junk and, and looks and words and people just, we just know how to do it. How is this going to stop? Someone has to be willing to step in again and again and absorb, with the help of God, the blow and to say, can we, can we go together? We're brothers. Our families are going to be different if, if we can grasp this. Do you see it? And I'll just say, our church is going to be different. I could tell all sorts of stories, but I'll take, I always like to tell stories from other churches. Other churches. Uh, I, I was a youth pastor, but I was also working with young adults back in Wisconsin. And it was a church in some ways like ours where sometimes as many as four generations were in the same church so people had been there forever. And in the young, new young marriage class, I, it was just such a tension every time I was teaching it. I couldn't get past it. And finally, I was just, what's going on in this place? I kept saying, what's going on here? And uh, finally, one of the persons came up and said, you need to know what's at the bottom of this. We've known one another for a long time. And in this one situation, uh, this one wife, young wife, Uh, was in the junior high group with his other wife. Now they're married to two very different people, but this one stole this one's boyfriend, and she has never forgiven her. And she's drawn all of her friends and family around her. So I'm telling you, we felt this. I came in from the outside. I I, I had no idea, but we felt this. Can, Can you just see somebody has to step in and say, that happened a long time ago. And all these years, I've just been thinking, it's all your fault. Get over that pride and, and listen to these words of Jesus. And I'll tell you, a place where God reigns, the way Jesus talks about God reigning, it's going to be a beautiful place. Don't you think? I, I'm convinced that Jesus knew how hard his teaching would be for us. But he also knew how beautiful it would be. He knew deeply that heaven can never be heaven, not forever, until we hear this teaching. And I'm so convinced that if only a few of us here at Blake Avenue Church, if only a few of us will today make a commitment to obey this teaching, we will become salt, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, preserving, flavoring what is happening in our world. We'll become light shining people to a better way. But we have to stop praying. Yes, but. We have to start praying. Lord Jesus, with your help, I'll obey. We have to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To his glory. Amen.